Reading from God's holy word comes from the letter of Galatians, Galatians chapter 2, beginning in verse 15 and continuing to verse 21, which is the very end of this chapter. Please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if... In our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners. Is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. Father in heaven, having heard your word now read in the assembly of your people, we ask for the powerful presence of your Holy Spirit to take these words, as it were, on the wings of a dove and send them into our hearts. We need the illuminating and transforming power that only the Holy Spirit possesses in relationship to this, your word. We need, in many cases, for you to remove the blinders from the eyes of our heart. We need in many cases for you to uncover and unearth layers of darkness. We need in many cases for you through the bright and shining light of the gospel to expel spiritual forces that would seek to gobble up the word of the truth. We need you to come and move powerfully among us. We need you to take this, your living word, and cut as you do through bone and marrow. Indeed, cut all the way to the recesses of our heart. For in one fell swoop of your word, you both wound and heal. You convict and convert. You are able to draw us to the end of ourselves. So that we might find the fullness and the no-ending glory of Christ. Unless you build the house, we who labor, labor in vain. Apart from you, we can do nothing. So we are dependent 
but we are eager. And we would ask now in our eager dependence that you would meet us in a way that would astound us and would change us and would glorify yourself. So come now and awaken us and have your way among us. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, some of you know I've mentioned this to you. I have been reading and rereading some of the classic works of the Reformation leading up to October and our celebration of this 500th year anniversary of the start of the Reformation. And one of the works that I've been rereading slowly and in snippets, dipping here and there, is The Institutes of the Christian Religion by none other than John Calvin, that great 16th century systematizer of doctrine. Uh, This week, because I was studying on justification by faith alone here in this passage from Galatians chapter 2, I said, why don't I just read Calvin on justification? Let me just, just have him wash in and over me for a bit as I'm reflecting on these incredible verses from the Apostle Paul. And Calvin, in one point in his Institutes, simply says this, justification is the main hinge on which salvation turns. I love the metaphor. You think of a door on a hinge, swinging one way, swinging another. It's as if Calvin is saying, the door of salvation doesn't open unless there's a hinge of justification. It's very similar to what Martin Luther said, wasn't it? His predecessor, that the article of faith on which the church stands or falls is the article of justification by faith alone. We are coming, friends, this morning in this passage to the very centerpiece, the very diamond itself of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. When we started Cornerstone, just... You know, seven years ago now, January 2011, so we're coming up on seven years together as a local congregation. It was this doctrine, justification by faith, this kernel of the gospel that motivated the planting of this local work. We wanted to make this message known. We wanted the truth, we wanted the power, we wanted the glory of the gospel as articulated in justification by faith alone to be something that spreads and we wanted to herald this truth and we wanted to see the power of this truth continue to lay sway in the hearts of God's people and to see conversions, those who don't know Christ, to come to know him, to become his disciples and to serve him. It's why in the opening statement of our Vision as a local congregation, we say we exist to glorify God in the gospel. That's why we exist. We exist for that purpose, to glorify God in the gospel. Now, there are a lot of different truths that one could turn to to unfold the gospel. Indeed, to say the gospel, we could refer to adoption, a wonderful truth of being brought in as sons and daughters of the king. We could talk about sanctification, which is the growth of a believer into the likeness of Christ. We could talk about glorification, which is the day that we will be like Christ and we will see him as he is and stare 
at his wonderful and beautiful face. We could talk about a lot of different aspects of the gospel, but when we come to justification, we're talking about the very centerpiece. We're talking about the glory of the present security that we have in salvation in Christ and the present motivation and drive that we have to live the Christian life. In these few verses, in fact, in just the opening three verses of Galatians 2, 15 through 21, the word justified is used four times. The Apostle Paul has a single-minded focus on this language of justification or justified. And in fact, I would argue the entire book of Galatians is reverberating, resonating with the reality of justification by faith alone. And it's so important to the Apostle Paul because as he's writing to the churches in Galatia, which are the churches in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, Churches like Antioch and Lystra and Derby and those churches which we see that Paul plans on his first missionary journey. You can read about it in the book of Acts. As he's writing to these believers of the church at Galatia, he's writing to them who have distorted the gospel. That's the language that he uses in chapter 1 verse 5. They have believed a distortion in the gospel. And he is coming as it were with the letter of Galatians to set them aright. In the doctrine of justification by faith alone in Christ alone. And so it's Paul's heart that we, along with the church at Galatia 2,000 years ago, would be set aright in this doctrine. And I believe what you'll see as we work our way through the teaching of these verses is it is hard to stay put in the doctrine of the justification by faith alone in Christ alone. We are indeed from birth, as it were, bent towards other kinds of gospels that aren't gospels at all. And Paul, having planted this church, I want you to, want you to envision it. If you were to pick one preacher in all of the New Testament who got the gospel right, who would it be? The Apostle Paul. He planted this church, and what? The church members went astray. It has nothing to do with the talent of the man who preaches. It has nothing to do with the peculiar leadership. It has is, it is everything to do with the power of the Holy Spirit holding us fast. And it shows us that our tendency is to stray from it. And so as we come to these few verses from the Apostle Paul today, verses that admittedly, as we were reading them a second ago, aren't you kind of thinking in the back of your mind, what in the world is he talking about? Right? It's a little hard to jump right in to chapter 2, verse 15, especially if you're with us for the first time. What in the world is going on in these verses? He's clearly in a line of argument. We're kind of jumping in midstream. Well, I hope to be able to help you see what it is that the Apostle Paul is saying. But in these verses, capsuled and compressed as they are in their teaching, I think you have one of the sweetest distillizations of the gospel that you will find anywhere. Now to look at this together. To explore this doctrine of justification from these verses, I want to look at it with you in three ways. I want you to see, first of all, the problem that we're in. I want you to see the problem that we're in. It lies behind the text that we're looking at, but it's critically important for our understanding. You've got to see first the problem that we're in. And then I believe, secondly, you can see the solution that justification offers. The solution that justification offers. 
It fits right into and indeed answers the problem that each and every one of us is facing. And thirdly, I want you to see the difference that justification makes. The difference that it makes. Once you see the problem, once you see the solution, and once you see the difference. All right, let's look at the problem together. What is the problem? Well, it's all wrapped up in and behind that word justified. Now, I've used it probably, if you're counting, 15 to 20 times probably already, and I will continue to use it through the course of this sermon because the whole central point is around justification. But I'm just going to conjecture that you don't just throw that word out in daily parlance, that it's not a part of your regular conversation, that you're just dropping the word justification in the ways that you communicate with each other. So what is it that we mean when we're talking about justification? Well, the first thing to note about this word is that it's a legal term. It is, if you will, a courtroom term. In fact, I would like to put you in a courtroom for just a second. Let's sit in the courtroom. Let's pretend that we're in a courtroom right now the trial has been arranged. People have come together. We've got the plaintiff and the defendant. We've got the lawyers. The arguments have been made. The evidence has been unfolded. The jury has gone back for deliberation. Or we might say the judge himself has listened. And we await his verdict. He comes out. Everyone's hushed. You could hear a pin drop in the room. And he reads the words. Not guilty. Now you don't have to imagine this because you've seen enough TV courtroom dramas to know that in the moment that word not guilty is read, you see on the person's face in whom the charges were against this sort of exhale. Everything was held in tension in that moment because he didn't know what was going to come back. What was going to be the nature of of the verdict, what was going to be the declaration? Well, the moment you hear the words not guilty, you know what you're hearing? You're hearing justification, you're hearing declaration, pronouncement of innocence. That's what justification is. It's to declare someone righteous. It's to say this person is in right standing with the law. They are in harmony with the powers that be. The courtroom is the courtroom that we are in, and it is God who has brought the charges. There are so many arguments that can be made against you and me in thought and word and deed. There is so much evidence that can be mounted up for our sinfulness and wickedness towards God. That's the courtroom in which we are in. That's the situation in which we find ourselves. And the reason that God has brought charges towards us is that we have indeed not lived up to the design of our character, but have indeed broken the commands of God. We were, as you know in Genesis chapter 1, created in the image of God. We were meant fully to express His character and to obey His commands, but we sinned. Adam and Eve ate of the forbidden fruit, and it wasn't just an oops, it wasn't just an accident. It was a breaking of God's holy law. It was a grievance against the Lord. And when that happened, that sin passed down to, was legally charged to the generations that follow. 
Like a cancer infecting one generation to the next, the sinfulness of Adam and Eve is still resident. The reality of it from the very womb is a part of your and my life. It's why the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 2 says, We were brought forth in iniquity. In sin, my mother conceived me. Now we know that there's a bitness at the very center of the human person towards evil rather than good because we know it by simply watching our own lives unfold and watching the lives of others unfold. Parents, let me ask you a question. Have you found it hard to get your children to sin? Like, Do you, do you find you need to train them to sin? Or have you noticed a predisposition towards sin that kind of came built in. Yes, the latter, in case you're confused. But you don't need your children, and no offense to the children in the room, because the same is true of your parents. They're just grown-up children. They have the similar inclinations, similar dispositions, and we find up every day as we get up, just even to get up out of bed, we have to work against things that are operable, powerful inclinations that are within us. You're experiencing the nature of the bitterness that's at the very core and predisposition of the human person. That reality that's there is not simply something that's bad, or negative, it's actually a sign that you're a lawbreaker at the very core of your being. That you're a sinner, not just simply because you're a sin, because you sin, but you're a, you sin because at the very core of your being, you're a sinner. Now, the, the recognition is that's a really terrible predicament to be in. You know, have you ever tried to change yourself by moving to another location? And, and, and strangely, you found that once you got there, there you were. Um, you know, it's, a, it's an odd thing. You, I'm going to get a new relationship. I'm going to try a new job. You know, everything is, the problem is out there somewhere, and i got to find the solution. Where the Bible says, no, the problem's in here. And Christ is the solution. It's fundamentally different. And so the question begins to arise, if this is the predicament, if this is the problem that we're in, is there anything we can do to be free from the guilt and the condemnation of sin? Can we, as a sinful person, once again be right with God? Can we begin to experience substantial healing and change in the present? Is there a means by which that happens? This introduces us secondly to the solution that justification offers. And we enter into the verses of Galatians chapter 2. When it comes to justification, Paul says there's really only two options. He says there's justification by works and there's justification by faith. Now to illustrate this, I want to simply remind you of the context in which we're in. In fact, scholars argue about the nature of how to treat verses 15 through 21. Because just previous to this, if you were with us last week, in verses 11 through 14, we were talking about this major clash, this, this conflict that happened between the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter. Let me just simply remind you of the conflict. Peter had gone to Antioch. 
He had been eating with the Gentiles. He had been enjoying pork sliders and shrimp scampi as we talked about last week together. He was loving the new diet that he had, now seeing that the laws of the Old Testament, the ceremony laws were abrogated. Now he had whole new friendships emerging because now Gentiles were people he could go and eat with and have dinner with in their homes. And then all of a sudden, who showed up but James people, the circumcision party, that really fun group from Jerusalem. They come to Antioch, and all of a sudden, you know what we're told? We're told that Peter separated himself from the Gentiles. He drew back in fellowship. You know why? Tells us in the passage, helpful. Says he was afraid. He feared man. He knew that if these men from James saw him eating with uncouth Gentiles and eating unkosher food, that they were going to go, Peter... And Peter didn't want any of that. He didn't want the disapproval of that. He didn't want the lack of acceptance in that. And out of fear of man, he decided to remove himself from the fellowship of the Gentiles. I'm just not going to eat with them. I'm not going to cause a stir. And the Apostle Paul comes and confronts him. And you know what the Apostle Paul says? He says, Peter, you're not walking in step with the gospel. You're not walking in step with the gospel. Now, the gospel says that a person is saved alone By faith alone, in Christ alone. But you, Peter, are acting like people have to do something more than trust in Christ in order to be welcomed. You're acting like they also have to keep the kosher dietary laws and be sure they do all the ceremonial cleansings and be be sure everything is, is properly done according to the Mosaic law. Peter, you're going over and beyond the demands for acceptance or welcome in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We either receive people in the gospel, which is by Christ alone, by faith alone, or we do it by works, which means that we add to it. And you, Peter, by your actions have indicated that you are walking out of step with the gospel. You are requiring something more of someone in order to be in fellowship with them. Now, this language of works of the law is what we see throughout verses 15 and 16. Paul is pitting these two forms of salvation against one another. Either you're justified by works of the law or you are justified by faith alone in Christ alone. And what Paul is trying to do is he's trying to show the fundamental difference between the way the gospel is in the Bible truly and the way religious people tend to think and live. And the way other religions, in fact I would argue every other religion, tends to operate in the world at large. He's saying the gospel is absolutely unique. It's fundamentally unique. There's nothing like it in the world. If you've wanted to know what separates Christianity from every other religion in the world, it's, it's that the gospel, the teaching of the gospel, is, is absolutely contradictory to, opposite of what you see in the religions of the world and how the religious mind tends to think in relationship to God. How is, how is that? If you look at Islam, or you look at Buddhism, or you look at Hinduism, you know what you hear? You'll hear this. Walk this path. Keep this law. Do these deeds. And you'll receive salvation. Inner peace. Nirvana. Enlightenment. Call it what you will. Do these things, and you'll live. Do these things, and and it'll all come together. This is all justification, acceptance, peace by works. 
by works. Do these things. Hold your jaw right in these religious functions, and then you will be saved. Now, lest you think I'm merely picking on other religions in the world that would certainly teach differently than Christianity, I want you to know Christianity has a really strong strain of this. The problem is it's directly out of accord with the central teachings of Christianity. Let me just give you an experiment. I want you to go downtown. I want you to ask a Christian. I want you to find one in downtown Frank. It's not too hard here in Middle Tennessee. You'll find a Christian. So you'll talk to him on the, on the sidewalk. And I want you to say, hey, why, are you, why should God let you into heaven? I can, I can almost, I can almost assure you, you're going to begin to get something like this. Well, you know, I, I'm a member of so-and-so church. And I have, I have been going to that church since, you know, I was, you know, knee-high to an ant, sitting on my aunt, you know, Jesse May Scrattergrass's knee there in, you know. And I give to the poor when I can. I'm a very kind person. I haven't killed anyone, I mean, not yet. And I haven't cheated on my taxes. I haven't cheated on my wife. Um, I'm a good person. I'm a good person. Now, here's why that's so troubling. Is that's identically what the Muslim would say. It's the same thing they would say. I keep the seven pillars. I read the Quran. I follow Allah. I do these things. And in doing these things, I will receive... The reward. Now, here's what's, here's what's so important about the language what we're talking about here in the text. The gospel, as described here in the scriptures, as Paul is unfolding in Galatians, is the exact opposite of that. It's the exact opposite of that. It's saying there's no way that you can do anything good that would make you justified or right in your standing with God. The reason is the situation is far worse than you can possibly imagine. It's far worse than you can possibly imagine. It's, it, is, it is not just to do with cheating on your wife. It has to do with if you ever lusted. It has is, it is less to do with about stealing as it does about coveting. It's, you know, have you let that word slip? Well, no, I would never let. Have you thought about letting the word slip? Condemned. Matthew chapter 5 makes it very clear that sin is not a matter merely of actions or behavior, but it's a matter of the heart. It's a matter of the inclinations or the thought of the mind. It's the recognition that not only do we commit these sins externally, but we commit these sins internally. In fact, the reasons for why we do some of the good things we do are terrible. How many times have you done something good just because you don't want to get caught? There's a lot of times where I just don't do stuff because I don't want to get caught. Praise God for that. Right? Come on. Right? I mean, I want to speed, but I'm afraid of getting caught. Right? So I don't. Now, is that the highest motivation you can imagine for living your life? Not getting caught? No, actually the motivation that we're told to live by in the scriptures is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and your neighbor as yourself. It actually has not much to do with like, oh yeah, and don't get caught. It's much higher motivation. It's a much higher requirement. 
So if you have ever found that in thought, word, or deed, you have ever done anything that would slightly be out of accord with the law of God, or you've found yourself never measuring up to quite to the degree of loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself, then what the scripture is actually saying is you're eternally condemned. Now all of a sudden, that begins to get this whole kind of good Christian thing out of the way. Okay, You don't have to worry about that anymore, because name. There's not a one of us that passes muster. When you begin to hold your life up to the straight edge of the requirements of the scriptures, the requirements of the word of God, you begin to realize that if you could earn a standing by keeping the law, you could never do it because you could never attain to the standard. Wouldn't matter. You can't keep it. You can't earn a standing with God by keeping the law, but it wouldn't matter anyway because you can't do it if... If you could. This is why Paul in verse 19 says it this way. He says, through the law, I died to the law. Through the law, I died to the law. Now that may sound really strange, but let me see if I can get at what Paul's trying to say here. He's saying, when you try to keep the law in your own strength, you know what you begin to do? The first thing you begin to do is you begin to trust in self. Isn't it always when you're just like trying to really do something right, you just completely get consumed with yourself? And you are sure enough going to botch it, right, when you do that. It just is the way it is. As soon as you begin self-focus in terms of doing just the right thing and overthinking it as if to make it perfect, what you'll begin to find yourself is full of anxiety, full of insecurity, Constantly obsessing over what it is that you're doing or not doing or how you should do what you should do or what they should do and in whatever situation it is. And you know what's actually happening in that moment? Idolatry. You are completely concerned with yourself. You're completely trusting in yourself. You've turned all attention to yourself and the very nature of idolatry is turning from God unto self. That's the very nature of it. So what actually happens is that many, of the, many times when we're doing the very best that we could possibly do in life, we are actually nurturing and tending a heart that is moving away from God rather than towards him. I mean, some of the times where I have been, quote unquote, Mr. Choir Boy, I mean, you know, like got my act together, is oftentimes the times where I've been so eaten up with pride, it's made me so distant from God. And then I fall into such utter despair if I wind up falling, continually shaming myself in the moment of doing so. Why? Because I don't have the chops, spiritually speaking, to look to Christ because I'm so focused on self. Because it was all about me anyway. When you inescapably focus on self, you will focus on performance, which means that you'll necessarily feel good if you do well and you'll feel despairing if you feel if you've done terrible, and thus you're on a roller coaster of highs and lows, you never know if you're quite right. Today I'm good, tomorrow I'm bad. Sound familiar? Anybody? Oh, good. A few people in the back. This is their story. The rest of y'all just listen in as we're trying to figure it out together. <laughs> Tough crowd. Paul says in here if our works are not the cure, for our ability to be able to stand in relationship with the Lord. But if it is by grace, if it is in Christ, then there's hope. You see, Paul had tried through the law 
to establish himself in the works of the law and stand with God. And when he realized, I keep working at the law, I keep failing at the law, and even when I try to do the law, I find all these other sins within me. I'm just giving up, I give up, I quit. The law's dead to me. I died to the law. That's what he means. I, I died to it. I realized that is slavery. That's slavery. I can't look to the law in order to save me. It's only heaping more and more shame and condemnation upon me. Now, here's what's fascinating. When you get to a place like that, where you are exasperated at your own inability to do what you ought to do and completely do even things the things that you do do that are good and you do them from bad places, when you begin to realize, oh, wait, I am just royally messed up, you are the closest you've ever been to the kingdom. You're the closest you've ever been to the kingdom. Now, I say that to you who may not know Christ today and are exploring whether Christianity is true. If you feel that, that to be true of you, keep listening because there is hope at the end of that. But that's, listen, friends, that's equally true for those of you who are believers in here because how much of your Christian life is lived in that old way? Eaten up with that old way. Because it's when you become desperate in your condition, realizing your inadequacy and incompetency to be able to do what you're called to, you're poised for grace. You're at a place to begin to look to someone else, to look outside for help. You know what we often do, whether it's with our marriages or sin struggles or making decisions that we can't come to a conclusion on. We work so hard, we exhaust ourselves, we bring all of our resources, and only to the point that we're finally willing to ask for help does oftentimes the Lord actually begin to change us and give us light. We want to do it on our own because we don't want to feel humble. We don't want to be humiliated. We don't want to admit. We don't want to confess. We'd rather defend. We'd rather fake it. And all the while, we're tending a heart that's moving away from the Lord, and we're looking good on Sunday morning. We're walking around tombstone, to use the language of Jesus. Now, in the notes on Galatians that Dre Gresham Machen wrote, his wonderful little commentary on, on Galatians, he says there's essentially two orders. Uh, Tim Keller talks about this as well. There's an order offered by men from James in this passage, and there's an order of the gospel. And here's the two orders. You can either believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and obey the law, and then you will be saved, which is how a lot of us function. We don't, none of us are disavow, those of us who are Christians are disavowing Christ. We're just also adding in the sense of works. But the moment we do that, we completely obliterate grace. Because if there's any measure of it you earn, it's not a gift, right? If there's any measure of it. So when we believe on Christ, oh yeah, I believe in Christ, now I've got to get it done so that I'll be saved. That, that feeling, he says, there's that order, that's the circumcision party. He says, but here's the gospel. The gospel is, believe on Jesus Christ, and you are in that moment absolutely and completely saved. And from salvation, you do works of the law. From a place of not earning, from a place that's, Already earned in Christ. That's what it is. You've just complete freedom. You've already arrived in Jesus. You have nothing more to prove. Absolutely nothing more to prove, which motivates you. It drives you to become the one who has received such death 
of law, of love. Now, this is where Paul in this particular section, verse 17, 18, says, Hey, okay, okay, that sounds awesome. And the objection comes, well, listen, if you take that away from people, what motivation do they have to actually really obey? And in verses 17 and 18, the apostle Paul says here, listen to the way he says it. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Let me translate this. If when we have found our justification in Christ through faith, we turn back to being sinners, don't we make Christ then a servant of sin? In other words, he's let us off the hook. We don't have to do this stuff anymore to be saved. I think I'll just do all this stuff then. All right, if, if one does that, here's what he says. Verse 18, for if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. What is he saying? He's saying, if I've said I'm done with that old way, but not really, I rebuild it. And I turn again to sin. I prove, I show with my actions, I never really have tasted the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. I've always still only had myself in view. That's the key. So you see, there are those who are Christians who are Christians so they can just do whatever they want to do with greasy grace. Which means that they're really full of themselves. And then there are those in the works of the law that are trying really hard to earn a standing with the Lord. And they're so focused on performance, which means that they're so full of themselves. But then there are those that are so free in Christ. Those that have been so completely redeemed in the Lord Jesus Christ. And know that we fully are accepted in the presence of Christ for what it is that he has done. And even right now as I speak and you speak, we're in the presence of the Holy Spirit. It's as if the heavens have opened up and we're in the throne room. And being in that spot, I experience the fullness of, my, of the love of Jesus Christ for me. And I can't help but want to follow him in every way that he would ask me to. That is a changed heart that has its eyes on Jesus. It's so got its eyes. It, it's so self-forgetful. It's so sick of wondering about self. And it is so enamored by the beauty and the glory of Jesus that it wants nothing more than to love him. Now, this is this language of union that you actually see within the text. This is what it means to actually trust in Christ. See, this is the difference that justification makes. In verse 16, the apostle Paul says that he believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Greek word there is ace. It means he believed into Christ. It's as if Christ surrounds him on every front. It's like, it's like we're in the cleft of the rock. The rock is completely surrounding us. He has now found his identity and his life fully in Jesus. It's exactly what he writes in Colossians. Our life is hidden with Christ in God. It is literally not a, us anymore. In salvation, we don't just get a new standing. We get a transformation of heart through our union with Jesus. And he says this, I have been crucified with Christ. This is the foundation of the Christian life. I have been crucified with Christ. And so each and every moment of my life, 
I realize that I've been set free from the condemnation of sin. And now I can live unto God. I've been crucified with Christ. I want you to see, friends, it's past tense. It's already been done. I have been crucified with Christ. It was something, notice, I didn't do it. I crucified myself. Is that what he says? No. This is not something you do. I have been crucified. This is something that has been done to me. We might even say this is something that's been done for me. I have been crucified. The old man has died. I'm no longer that man. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith, notice, in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. What you see in this is a beautiful foundation and motivation. When you begin to experience the foundation of the relationship, you begin to be motivated to go deeper into it. Let me give you an example of how this actually works. I, Sinclair Ferguson, quite a few years ago, gave this illustration and stuck with me forever. And if Sinclair Ferguson said it, you and I should both believe it. It's a rule of the universe. He gives the example of saying, what is your relationship to Christ? He asked that question. And it is our tendency when we're asked that question, what is your relationship to Christ, to say, well, you know, it's not as close as it, it used to be. I have highs and I have, I have lows. Um, but Sinclair Ferguson said, no, that's not what I'm asking. I'm not asking, how is your relationship to Christ? I'm asking, what is your relationship to Christ? What's the nature of the relationship? And he says the nature of the relationship is that you have been saved and given fully his standing before the sight of God and that never under any circumstances will fluctuate. Never. It can't. He says it works like this. He says, are you married? You may ask me this morning, Nate, how's it going with Christy? What's the relationship with Christy? And I might say, you know, Friday night we had a great date. I mean, we, we did. We went out. We had a great meal. We took a beautiful sunset walk at Harlansdale. I think we're doing awesome. I think we're amazing. But he's saying that's not the point. That's not the question. The question is, how are you related to Christy? Well, she's my wife. And I may have a bad day with Christy or a good day, but the thing that never changes is that she's my wife. It's the stayed point of the relationship. You may in your relationship with Christ have a good day, <laughs> have a bad day. I'm not a prophet or son of a prophet, but you probably will have good days and bad days. But here's what will always be true of your relationship if you're in Christ. You are married to Jesus. And he always keeps his vow to you. In fact, he is so good that he has kept your vow to him as well, when he went to the cross and he took on all of your forsaking of your vows and he paid the penalty of all of your sin, 
and then broke forth from the grave on the third day and is right now at the ascended to the right hand of the Father in heaven. He not only kept his vow, he was keeping your vow for you, which means that you're not so bad that you can ever get out of this or so good that it could ever get better. You are right now in Christ, the sweetest in union that you could ever be. Never more safe or secure than when you are in Christ. Not here than the day you see him face to face. When the believer has that kind of bold authority in the acknowledgement of what Christ has done, I can assure you, you will not be the kind of person who says, yeah, I don't want to spend much time with him. When that gets you, and it drops into your heart, you become a person that wants to be like the person who will love you in that way. And that's what God wants. And that's what he's calling us to. He's calling us to amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Do you feel the astonishment in those words? The utter amazement that God would fulfill his vow to me and then fulfill my vow to him all in all and make it perfectly rock solid that it can never be compromised. Amazing love. I have no, there is absolutely no way to compare it with anything else in all of human creation. And then I say, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. How could it not? How could it not? Like in the moment where I come to my senses and say, Christy is my wife. She's my wife. She, she made those vows to me. She's put up with the mess that I am for 15 years. It, I can't believe I act like a fool. I, I love her. By going back and rehearsing the nature of the relationship and its bonds, it gives us a foundation and a motivation for going. But our relationship is not worthy to be compared with the marriage that I have with Christ. Because she can't fulfill my vows for me. And I can't fulfill them for her, but Christ can. And Christ has. And so we walk by the solidity, just as every disciple of Christ walks by the solidity and the strength and the drive of that kind of love. Do you see, God is not looking for a bunch of stoic, check-the-box law keepers. He's looking for hearts that are utterly sold out and committed to him. He doesn't, he doesn't take delight in your burnt offerings and sacrifices. He wants a broken and contrite heart. He, in other words, he wants all of you. Not just the piddling coming to church and tithe offerings. He wants it all. And his love demands enjoy that we give it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, touch us with the strength of this gospel. That it resonates profoundly in our hearts. And changes us from the inside out. Until we can say. Christ is mine. And I am Christ. And there is no other. We pray this. In Christ's name. Amen.